Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We started the book of Exodus together. Uh, so we finished the Joseph novella, which is at the end of um, the book of Genesis. And we started the book of Exodus. Last week, we looked at all of the women of the Exodus that made redemption possible. Um, and of course, that starts with uh, incredibly brave acts and acts of loving kindness, acts of chemla, of a kind of compassion. Um, and those acts happen long before the redemption. <laughs> and how long have the Israelites been enslaved? Over 400 years. So the, yeah, in Egypt. Thank you, George, for the clarification. Yes, in Egypt. <laughs> so, um, over 400 years. So we have over 400 years of slavery. Then we have all these actions that take place long before, right, the actual story of the plagues and of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of the leaving of Egypt. So what it reminds me of all the time, and I need to be reminded all the time, um, is that there are things happening that are going to have consequences way down the line um, that we can't possibly imagine from where we're sitting. And I think it's a really important thing for us to uh, take with us from the Parsha. You know, I usually wait till the end to do that, but um, I want to point it out at the beginning, that, that our story is about um, the things that have to happen long before um, big change will be evident, but they, but that big change could not happen, right, without Yocheved hiding that baby for three months, then putting him in the Nile, not to drown him as was ordered, but to save him, um, with Bat Paro when she sees him and has Chemla on this baby and decides, even though it is other, um, to take it as her own, Miriam to speak to the princess, right? A slave girl to suggest to the princess, shall I fetch you a wet nurse? So meaning, since you're keeping him, <laughs> evidently, right? So to suggest that, all of the many things, the midwives who refused uh, to kill baby boys, all of these acts are ones that had to happen in order for Moshe to be in position to lead the people and to lead them out. So um, it's just a reminder for us that it takes a long time and way longer than we like. And uh, as we were talking at Hartman, as you know, I just came back from Hartman in Jerusalem. Um, you know, what they talk about there a lot is if you're about something really important, then you probably won't see the fruits of it in your lifetime. If you're really part of a big project, a really big project, you may not see the fruits of that labor in your lifetime. Um, and it's just something I feel right now a lot of us could use uh, a reminder <laughs> about. Yeah? Right, Senator? Yeah, just saying. Just saying. Um, all right, let's look at our text for today. We are going to look at uh, the beginning of Parshat Vaera. So we're going to look at Chapter 6 of the book of Exodus. Verse 2, So God speaks to Moshe and says, just in case you have forgotten, you are dealing with Yodhei right? So Moshe was commissioned by Yodhei and if you'll recall, at Moshe's commissioning, God says, 
your ancestors, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, knew me as El Shaddai. They did not know me the way you will know me. You will know me as Yudhei So um, El Shaddai is the, is the relationship between God and the patriarchs and the matriarchs. Um, so the the relationship between the patriarchs says this author says this text, the person writing the source writing this story says that there was a different relationship between the patriarchs and matriarchs and God and Moshe and God. There is a new understanding of the divine that is Yud Hey Vav Hey, whereas the patriarchs and matriarchs uh, were told by this author knew God as El Shaddai. All right. So I appeared to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov as El Shaddai. Ushmi Adonai. So this is the disjunctive vav, not the conjunctive vav. So but, so they knew me as, I appeared to them as El Shaddai, but Shmi Yudhe Vavhe. But my name is Yudhe Vavhe. Lono Dati Lahem. I did not make that known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Kna'an, the land in which they lived as what? Gerim, right? Sojourners, right? Strangers. Um, I have heard the moaning of the Israelites because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. But it's deeper than that. I have heard... The moanings of Bnei Israel, Asher Mitzrayim Ma'avidim Otam. That Mitzrayim, that Egypt, Ma'avidim Otam, has made them slaves. But it's not just that the Egyptians are, are, uh, deciding what to do to them. Our commentators want to suggest this is deeper than that. Mitzrayim has made slaves out of them. What's the difference? Didn't I just say the same thing? Ah, nice, Ben. Yes, the Mafarshim want to say it's it's more the Hebrew is more uh, flexible, like in terms of remember how we had the Hebrew midwives? Does that mean they were Hebrew or they were the midwives to the Hebrews? And so you're calling the Southern California midwives. It doesn't mean they're necessarily from Southern California. They serve Southern California. So. Same here with this Hebrew. The Egyptians made of them slaves. Does that mean they made them behave like slaves? The Mafarshim want to say, our classical commentators want to say, no, it's way worse than that. They made them into slaves, meaning they saw themselves as slaves. And this, as we know, is the real danger, right? This ultimately say many commentators, is what got them dead in the desert. The fact that they saw themselves as slaves, that they could not believe or take on the responsibilities, right? So they keep messing up over and over and over and over until God has had it and says, y'all are going to drop, your carcasses are going to drop in the desert. It will be your children who make it into the land of Israel, not y'all. Because y'all clearly can't think like, free people. Y'all clearly can't be trusted to be given a bunch of instructions and then go build a society based on them. You keep messing it up all the time because ma'avidim. 
you were made into slaves. And slaves can't build a free society, says our story. Their descendants can. Okay. But I, but God says, I have remembered Briti, my covenant. Say therefore, so tell the people Israel, I am Yud and I will take you out from under the sufferings of Egypt and will deliver you from their bondage. And here we have great uh, language from what some of us grew up with in the blue Maxwell House Haggadah, right? Right? I will take you out with an outstretched arm, right, through uh, extraordinary chastisements. Bert? Can you talk about the word remembered here? Because clearly, if God knows everything, God couldn't have forgotten and would have. So it's not remembered in the sense of, oh, I forgot and now I just remembered. What, what, is, what does the Hebrew word mean? Zachor. The it Hebrew is Zachor. Yeah, the Hebrew is remember. And so for this is one of the many places we see that the Hebrew word Zachor is not passive. Right? Like, it's not like, like you said, oh, I just remembered. Like, that happened to God. It, and then that's it. Like, I remembered. It came to mind, and then that's it. In, in Hebrew, both classically and in modern Hebrew, Zachor is about action. It, right? It's about doing something as a result of paying attention to, in this case, a promise. Right? A, a breach, a covenant. Um, also, when God hears the cries of the people, it's like, uh, what, God didn't hear for 400 years? <laughs> right? Like, so, uh, right? So the Mepharshim want to say it's because the people had become so enslaved psychologically, as Ben said, they've become so enslaved, they stopped crying out against their oppression. It took them crying out. That sa'aka, that cry, that had to happen before God could move. So that's the beginning of yes. the freedom. Yes, which is crying out. Nachon, is is nachon, um, right. Later is, we see the people need to do it first. The people have to. And so Zachor means doing something. I see you, Judith. Um, the, it means um, it, when God Zachors, it means God remembers. And so when we say Zachor, we mean that too as Jews, right? That it's a commandment, Lizkor, to remember. That doesn't mean like, oh, okay, got it. It's in here, right? Like, it means we do something. Either we light a candle that burns for 24 hours. So every time we pass that room, like, we, we see the representation of that person's neshama, that person, whatever it is, we, we, it's an active sense remembering for Jews. Judith? I just wanted to point out that above what was originally intended as the front entrance for the synagogue, we have a giant shin above the door. And yes. it is, I think, in memory of the the Shaddai that you just spoke of, the uh, connection between the two forces, the men and the women and, and so forth. Yes. So uh, I wouldn't say in memory, I would say it is representative of the name yes. Shaddai because we usually put that... Uh, on the cloth, on the parchment in a mezuzah, and um, and there's a space, there's a hole in the back of the mezuzah, and the shin shows through that hole. So that was the thinking here, is you're entering into this sacred space, so just like you would see a shin for Shaddai 
on a mezuzah, so you see it on the window as people come in as a sign of uh, welcome to this Jewish sacred space. Oh, Mefarshim. Yeah, sorry. The the our classic commentators: Rashi, Sforno, Ibn Ezra, Rambam. Like our so um, uh, Leif Roche is to interpret, to unpack. So um, so the Mefarshim are the ones who are unpacking the text, right? And so those are the classical right commentators. Um, sorry. Yes, if I don't translate something, please stop me because it's not okay. Um, okay. Uh, so say therefore to the people of Israel, who are we dealing with? We are dealing with Yud Hey Vav Hey. I will free you from the laborers with uh, an outstretched arm and extraordinary chastisements, meaning of the Egyptians. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I Yud Hey Vav Hey am your God, who freed you from the labors of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and I will give it to you, Morasha, as an inheritance. Ani Adonai, I am Yudhevafe. But because this is a Jewish text, after this beautiful promise by God to Moshe, what is the very next letter that we get in verse nine? The disjunctive of but because it's a Jewish story. But Moshe, right, when he told this to Bnei Israel, Lo Shama'u, they didn't listen. Or you could translate it, they didn't hear. Right? Why not? Why couldn't they listen to Moshe and hear his words? Mikotzer ruach. From katzar is short. Ruach. What is ruach? Wind. So in this case, what is that? It's not wind out there. Breath. Kotzer ruach. From a shortness of breath. U me avodakasha. And from Harsh labor. Okay. Just accepting it as it was, and all of a sudden now it, it, they're reacting to it, being hostages. Or, or, or the opposite. They have spent all this time enslaved and suffering, therefore they can't hear Moshe's message that they're going to be delivered. Well, that's a different right? they, way of looking at it. They can't hear George. George. George is going to take the microphone. No, uh, they couldn't accept it because if there were a God, they wouldn't have been slaves in the first place. Oh, George. Oh, ow. Wow. Okay. Um, wow. George is like going there today. Like, okay. Um, so George is suggesting... Or the reason they can't listen to a message from yud vav is because they're like, well, if there was a God that was strong enough to take us out, where the heck has he been? There can't be such a, a being because we wouldn't be suffering for 400 years if there were a being capable of taking us out. Um, okay, so but we have to remember the theology of the people who are writing this story. George. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So... What is the theology of the people writing this story? 
Yeah, the right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Harder to put yourself there, isn't it? Yeah, it, but, you know, this also, because I've always asked, been concerned about God hardening the hearts of the heart of Pharaoh. Yes, yeah, so you have been very concerned about that yes, over the I years. Have. But I thought it was just to show his power to the Egyptians, but it's also to convince now I think the the uh, Israelites that God has power. So Look at you! Powerful. Look at you interpreting Torah through the lens of George Wokon. Love that. George has always had a problem with this harding of the heart business, but now has come to interpret it uh, as a commentator on our text uh, a little differently, that it's not just to show off to the Egyptians how powerful God is, but to show the Israelites, because as we can see, they are having a hard time. You you asked the question. The I did, I? The theology of the people. Oh, right. And, and an answer <laughs> that back then they believed that God intervened in human affairs, talked to people, and controlled what was going on in the world. So this is very natural, the story, based on their theology. So yes. how? That, that George was... is going to say they don't believe Moshe because how could they be enslaved for 400 years if there was a God that could take them out? Right, but How I, does I saw... your theology answer that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jody, you want to try? Oh, Kayla, Jody, then Kayla. Thank you. You have to cry out. That's the running theme here, like Hagar or Hadar. Hagar, right. Hagar. Excuse me. When she cried out, she all of a sudden saw the water was placed before her. So you have to cry out. That's the deal, the running theme. Okay. So you're saying that they might have understood it to be that God didn't act because they hadn't done something yet? Okay. Kayla? Huh? That, that, they, ha- that they thought they had to do something that they hadn't done? Uh, Bert. <laughs> I don't know if it's so much that they thought they had to, but like for this whole partnership thing, like on God's end, like he, like you said, Jody, he responds from the cry. Like it's like he kind of takes action from crying out. Like he's like he he cannot do anything now that the people are crying out. Um, so maybe that's why. But if they don't have that knowledge, then. I don't know. In, in the in the extreme, it's God helps those who help themselves. Uh, who were uh, uh, right? Well, that certainly is what we take from the story. Many of us, right? That that's certainly it. I'm not sure we've gotten to the theology that could have had them be enslaved for 400 years and still believe there was Yotevafe. Okay, so. The writers of this story, and we all have been told, it's just writers, um, they, I think, want to instill some type of guilt. Well, you didn't cry out, so you don't get any help. I don't know. That seems to be the running theme. Like, you have to do something first to get that help. All right, let me ask you, um, if the ancestors knew God as El Shaddai, who knew God as Yudhe in terms of these people? Nobody. Moses. Well, Moses did after Not God the people. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're retrojecting onto them 
an inability to have faith in yod heh vav ability to take them out when we don't know that they know anything about yod heh vav They've been in Egypt for 4,000 years. Who do they think the most powerful God in the world is? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. <laughs> Ra. Right. They, they don't have a reference point for yod heh vav they don't know from yod heh vav very likely. The rabbis don't want to see it that way, God forbid. The Mepharshim say, of course they worshipped Adonai in Egypt, of course, right? They're descendants of Avraham, of course. But really, really, like, what do they know from this Yahweh business? So is this the beginning of the evolution of the concept of God? So is that what's being said here? So I think the God is evolving, or at least definitely the authors are evolving the concept of God here. Definitely. There's no reason otherwise to say they knew me as El Shaddai. You know me as Yod The authors, I think, are saying there is a new relationship in place. I have now revealed myself to you, Moshe, and will to this people in a way that I haven't maybe had to before. But it is definitely an evolution, right? And if you want to look at, you know, the book Freud, uh, Moses and Monotheism, there was a scientist guy named Freud, um, and like there's that whole idea that it's Moshe, that it's the experience, right, that Moshe has in Egypt that starts to to develop into the idea of monotheism. And we know Ankhenaten, we know we know that whole revolution against the priestly system of uh multiple deities in Egypt, right? It was quickly squashed because it threatened the priesthood of Ra and Isis, right? And Horus, and right? So you you were going to put all of them out of work? I don't think so, right? So that was quickly squashed. But there was a movement towards monotheism in Egypt. All right, yes. So, I mean, what, what you're saying then is that what really defined this new relationship with God was a, re, a, a definition of yourself and as, as not a slave, as a rebellion, as the whole story of Exodus is really what defined the Jews as a people. And before that, what did they have? They had just um, a God who pushed them around and told them what to do. I mean, what, what, what is the difference between El Shaddai relationship and this new Yudhe Right. It's a very good question. Pro- probably, technically, it is a different biblical source. Um, probably, we're talking about the evolution of the idea through a different source than J.E. P, the priestly source, has a very different understanding of God than J.E. So that is probably what we're looking at. <laughs> so... Um, the the Yahwist source and the Elohist source, our earliest sources, have a very different understanding than P, you know, than the priestly author. So that's probably some of what we're dealing with. Yes. This kind of is winding backwards a little bit, but in AA, for example, nobody can get help until they hit rock bottom. So you also have to be, this doesn't address the two different relationships with the two different types of monotheistic God. <laughs> But it's possible that until a, a people is hit rock bottom, they're not receptive to whatever the next thing would be. Yes. Yes. That goes back to the tsa'aka, to that cry. Like it has to get to a certain point before they're ready to like do something. Yes, it has to get so bad. Um, and there's one commentator that said there's 50 levels and they were at level 49. 
and, and had they gone any lower, they would not have been redeemable. A very interesting, pretty sophisticated um, rabbinic commentary that's like very early in Jewish mysticism. So um, that, you know, had, had they gotten to level 50, they couldn't have gone out. That you have, you have to hit almost rock bottom, right? That if you hit absolute rock bottom, you're, yeah, you're flattened. Like you're, you're completely incapacitated. So let's go one step further. There's also a commentary that says God cut the time to 200 years because if it went any longer, they would have hit 50. Yeah, right. Very similar uh, interpretation. Uh, I was going to say, why is it fair to presume that they had to hit rock bottom rather than they finally had someone who inspired a seed of hope, which could have happened at any time, a leader that made them wake up and start thinking. Because if you're a slave, you don't think. Because they cried out before Moshe. Right. But what Moshe delivered to them was a different opportunity. Gam v'gam, yes and yes. The commentators are working with the tsa'aka, the cry, that then God says, I'm paying attention to the slavery in Egypt, and I'm about to do something about it. That's what they're talking about, that the people had to get to a place where they cried out against the oppression before God could do something about it. Then God could send Moshe. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't go the other way. Hmm? The chicken and egg argument you're saying. I'm saying it's clear in the Torah what the chicken and what the egg is. Like that right. you, in Torah, they had to cry out before God took notice and was going to come down and do something about it. Definitely, they needed a Moshe. A vessel. They needed somebody who could bring them a different message. Absolutely. Right. They, right. you're absolutely, I said, Gambagam, also and also. You're exactly right. That Torah is very clear that they needed a different perspective. And notice, Moshe is not raised as a slave. Where's Moshe raised? In the palace. Moshe is one of the one percenters. Right? So so it had to be a radically different perspective than the one they had that he could deliver with authenticity because he didn't have that experience. Maybe. I mean, I'm pushing it here, but... But yes, they needed to hear something very different, and they needed a leader who could do it, right? And for us, one of the things that's most important for me um, in our text is that um, they, that our leader, like par excellence, our leader is the one who says, pick somebody else. <laughs> You've got the wrong guy. Right, Ben? Right? <laughs> good leadership, real political good leadership is about, I don't want the job. If you want the job too much, you, by definition, according to like our tradition, by definition, you're not the right person <laughs> right for the job. Yes. I was going to say that at true rock bottom, you can't cry out anymore. Right. So you no longer have a relationship with God. You no longer have a relationship with anything. Yeah. So. So I think so. That's I think that's where those classical commentaries, like very early on, say. There's 50 levels and they were at 49. <laughs> you know, like had they gone one more, they they would not have been able to be redeemed. All right, I want to spend a little time um, with commentators on this Kotzer Ruach business because I feel like it really speaks to where I feel like I am and a lot of us have been. Dana, when did Moses start leading? After his father-in-law talked to him? A very good question. 
Um, he is commissioned, yes, while he is working for his father-in-law. Who's his father-in-law? Jethro. Yes, who's Jethro? Yitro. 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 Who is Yitro? People. He is the high priest of Midian. Moshe flees because he's killed the taskmaster, which is a capital offense. He flees. He's a refugee. He's a fugitive. He lands at the well, of course, um, because that's where you're going to find somebody is at the well. So he lands at the well. He finds Sipora. He marries Sipora, the daughter of the high priest of Midian. It is while working for his father-in-law that he has the uh, episode at the burning bush, at the sneh, at the burning bush. There are some people who want to suggest that it was the Midianite priest that introduces Moshe to Yudhe that it is in ex- being exposed to the Midianite tradition that Moshe has this encounter with Yudhei Buffet. You're saying this is the beginning of interfaith dialogue? It's just saying, um, right? Interfaith uh, uh, influence, right? And so he that, that's where he discovers Yudhei Buffet as an entity um, and then takes that back to Mitraim, takes that back to uh, Egypt. Um, wait, why did that come up? Oh, right. So Dana, right. That's where he's commissioned. That's where God says, I am the God of your ancestors. Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Those of you who know me, adoptee, this is where I like to say, this is Moshe's ancestry moment. That he doesn't know until that moment that he is Hebrew. He is told by God, I am the God of your ancestors. And your ancestors are the following. Abramowitz. Goldberg, <laughs> Rabinowitz, you're a Jew. We don't know that he's to- that he knows that before then, at all. He's been raised in the palace as the daughter of, as the son of the princess, right? So, um, it wouldn't have been smart of her to tell a kid. By the way, I went against my father's orders by saving you. Like that would have been stupid. Right for the kid to go, oh, Pharaoh, by the way, like, I, I didn't realize I was Hebrew and that your daughter took me out of the water and saved me when the orders were, right? So so the, everything points to the fact that Moshe would not have known that he was Hebrew. Um, so Dana, to your, to your point, it's a, that, that's the commissioning. That's when he becomes the, the reluctant leader. Because he says, pick somebody else. I am, you know, heavy of tongue, right? I, you know, the rabbis want to call that a speech impediment, but I, I don't speak well, right? Pick somebody else. You've got the wrong guy. He's a Jewish leader, right? So he's going to say, God, you're wrong. You made a mistake. Master of the universe, you have made a mistake. Okay, Kotzer Ruach. I want to look at this business of Kotzer Ruach, and Ben put his finger on it very early. So these are the Mepharshim. We're going to start with our earliest commentators. Um, we have the verse here, but when Moses told it to the Israelites, they would not listen to Moses, or it just says they didn't listen, they didn't hear, um, because from Kotzeruach, from a shortness of spirit or breath, and from hard labors. So what does Rashi say? One of our earliest and classic commentators who always wants, what's the bottom line? He's not going to get like all flowery. Rashi wants to know what do the words actually mean? He says, but they hearkened not to Moses. They did not accept his words of comfort. Mikotzer ruach, through anguish, 
shortness of spirit. If one is in anguish, his breath comes in short gasps. And, and he is not able to draw, uh, in the Hebrew, it's aroch, long breaths. We say deep in English, but in the Hebrew, it's when you're in anguish, you can't, Rashi's saying, kotzer ruach is a symptom. Like the fact that they can't draw a deep breath is because anyone who is in anguish, if you look at them, they are by, like, kind of by definition not breathing deeply. They just, they can't. And Aviva Zorenberg goes on to say, and then the more shallowly you breathe, the worse it is. Like, you know, it just, it kind of, if you've ever had a panic attack, um, or know someone who has, right, it, that, that shortness of breath starts to be kind of a, uh, a cycle. It, it makes it harder to breathe when you're taking short breaths. Um, okay. So now we're going to look at Sforno, 10th century commentator. Mikotze Ruach, from this shortness of breath or spirit, for it did not appear believable to their present state of mind so that their heart could not assimilate such a promise. It was just too far outside their range, says Forno. Given where they were, what's the definition of Kutzer Ruach? They're in a place where the state of mind is so shut down that they can't hear Moshe. All right, Ibn Ezra, uh, I think 11th century, 12th century, wants to say, Israel did not hearken nor pay attention to the words of Moses as their spirit was impatient because of the length of their exile and the hard labor which was recently put upon them. So Ibn Ezra wants to say their inability to hear was out of their impatience. It needs to happen now. If it's not going to happen now, I don't want to hear it. I can't relate at all. (laughs) Can you? Like to that, uh, that impatience might be getting in the way a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and then we have a very ex- a long explanation for from Ramban, Nachmanides. This is not Maimonides. This is Nachmanides, who also says the impatience of spirit was their fear that Pharaoh would put them to death. As our officer said to Moses, the cruel bondage was the pressure for the taskmasters pressed upon them and hurried them in their daily task, which gave them no chance to hear anything and consider it. Meaning the pressure on them, the anxiety of not knowing if their lives would be forfeit in the next 15 minutes, if they didn't do what they were, you know, fast enough, work hard enough or fast enough, that led them to not be able to hear anything past this next moment. Um, that their impatience of spirit was about really thinking their lives were constantly on the line. And when you're living like that, with this existential sense of you could like be gone in in a moment, and it was a reality for slaves, right? Everywhere, it's still a reality for slaves everywhere, because we have more slaves in the world now than ever before in human history. Just so we're clear, um, and that that's how it always is, right? That if if you're living in that kind of existential panic that your life could be forfeit any moment, it's very hard to start thinking about bigger possibilities and other realities, right? Being an actual possibility. Lynn Himmelstein, speak. I'm curious, did the uh, Hebrews living the slaves know that Moses was one of them or they saw him 
being raised and behaving as a prince. So initially, did they believe and trust him? That is an excellent question, um, Lynn. Excellent question. Obviously, we don't know. So this is a myth. This is a hero myth. This is our tale of right of the beginnings of our nation, um, which you know I love because we start with we were slaves. We were nothing. I love that that's our foundational story. Not we were the biggest and the strongest and the smartest and we beat everybody up in the neighborhood and so yeah, right? Like that's not a Jewish story. We were nothing. Um, look who thinks he's nothing. Remember that joke? So, um, so to your point, Lynn, we, you know, we can put ourselves in the mind of the folks, you know, telling the story, crafting the story. And I have to believe that is a distinct possibility that the people don't trust Moshe because he doesn't talk like them. Right. He talks like he's from somewhere else. He don't talk like us. And we don't trust folk who don't talk like us, do we? We don't trust people who don't talk like us. He, he's got Does he talking class. to the Israelites? Hebrew? He well, presumably he's Jackson. talking in, in their language, right? Which presumably, you know, is Hebrew, but again, we don't know. They all, they all speak Egyptian fluently, I would imagine. But, but Lynn, were you saying something? Well, he's speaking like in a fancy upper class British accent. He's Correct. Speaking Correct. Right. That, that, and we don't trust people right away necessarily who sound a lot more like the oppressors than like us. They also could think he's a plant. Like this is a trick. You know, and what happens? The first time Moshe says something, what happens? Do you remember what happens? Pharaoh takes away their straw and says you have to make just as many bricks and they have to hold together just like they did before, but now you don't get straw. So this Moshe guy like doesn't turn out to be right away such good news for them. Possibly he's a plant, right? They're trying to trick us. Okay. So let's look at um, Rabbi Aaron Leib-Smokler, who brings us always the Sfat Emet. The Sfat Emet, Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, the Ger Rebbe, um, uh, 18th century, uh, says, But Moses appealed to God, saying, The Israelites would not listen to me. How then should Pharaoh hear me, a man of impeded speech? We've already explained that because the Israelites couldn't hear, therefore Moses was impeded of speech. What did the Sfatimet just do? The Sfatimet just flipped everything. Moshe doesn't have a speech problem. Moshe has a speech problem because the people won't listen. How great an orator can your leader be when the people refuse to listen? Moses is to bring a message of salvation to a downtrodden people, promising them that God will finally deliver them. After hundreds of years of slavery, generations of oppression and trauma, redemption is nigh, but the people could not hear it. It seems that the Israelites were too deeply mired in their pain of the moment to take in future-oriented promises. They could not fathom a reality other than the one that they and their grandparents and their great-grandparents inhabited And so they blocked out even mention of an alternative. They simply could not metabolize what seemed so flagrantly false. Now we're getting the words of the Sfatimet again. Speech was in exile so long as people were not prepared to listen to the word of God. Because listening requires total openness. 
as it is written. And here the Svatimet quotes the Psalms, because remember the game is that if you want to prove your point, you take from another verse of Torah. There is no early or late in Torah. All of it is circular, like a think of a wind tunnel or a tornado. The words of God are always swirling. It is revelation. It is truth. So as it comes around, you grab that verse and attach it to your point. His point is you have to be open to hear. And so he looks at verse Psalm uh, Psalms 47:11 hear last and note incline your ear forget your people and your father's house. We would have to go and spend a lot of time to figure out exactly why he pulls that verse. This is the essence of exile of galut even now. Remember, we Jews are living in exile when he's writing. There is no state of Israel, right? We are still in galut. We are still in exile just like we were in Egypt. To not be able to open oneself and forget the vanities of the world so that the heart might be open to hear the word of God without foreign thought. In contrast to the plain meaning of the text, which indicates that people would not listen to Moses because he could not speak, the Sfatimet suggests that Moses could not speak because the people could not hear. That is, he could not communicate with the people so very shut down and unavailable to his messaging. With no a priori buy-in, no openness to taking in new things, Moses, the harbinger of hope, was effectively silenced. Exile is not a place. It is a condition of being in which we are closed down, shut off, unable to receive, unable to thank you, activate our faculties of imagination. It is a state of being stuck, folded into ourselves, unable to open to the presence of another. To exit exile, then, we must render ourselves vulnerable, capacious, receptive. Redemption and revelation demand radical openness and inner quieting so that we might hear the sounds of the others who call to us. Such an emptying, the Sfatimet assures us, will return us to deep breath and to our expansive souls, breath neshima, soul neshama, in humbly listening for the whispers of revelation, we simultaneously attune ourselves to intimations of the divine. Elena Allen, please read for us Rabbi Yael Shai, number seven. And she's talking about Kotzer Ruach. In my experience, this is an apt description of despair. Despair is different from sadness, fear, or even suffering. One can experience any of those difficult emotions or states of being and still have space in the mind and heart for the possibility of the unknown future, of things changing. In despair, one believes that there is no one answer you need and it, oh, there's only one answer you need and it is no. Nothing will change. There is no hope and no possibility. Despair, even though it is desolate and hopeless and filled with pain, is actually an alluring resting place wherein you are suffering. There are no unknowns. There is no possibility of disappointment. And none of the hard work required to keep the aperture of the heart open to the possibility of transformation. Despair offers a false sense of protection against future pain by closing us down in advance, locking all the doors and wallowing in our suffering. How do we emerge? How do we emerge out of this place of extreme narrowness? One clue comes from Rambam. He argues that Kotzer Ruach 
indicates the Israelites' impatience of spirit as a person whose soul is grieving on account of his misery and does not want to live another moment in his suffering, even though he knows that he will be relieved later. If impatience leads to despair, practicing patience and trust is our path out of it. In the Torah, God backs off of the Israelites. God does not demand anything of them at that moment. They can't hear the declaration of commitment and love that God is promising. So God starts the process of offering signs and signals that slowly peel away the layers of doubt and closed-offness on the part of the Israelites. George, your insight. That's your insight right there. George, trust slowly emerges on the place of doubt, melting the despair and hopelessness. Watch, God seems to be saying, I'm going to take care of you. You will be delivered. You will get out of this. All you have to do is be patient and trust. There will be more asked of the Israelites very soon. The Israelites will be told to pack up everything they have and leave everything they know for an unknown future on the other side of the sea. But for now, in the slow movement from slavery to freedom, the Israelites are just asked to show up, to witness God's love for them, and to slowly open up to the possibility of change. What do y'all think about this idea that she's bringing forward that despair is actually quite a comfortable place to rest when one is suffering? Yeah, I, I agree with what she said, especially about the piece um, about it being false protection. And you kind of can't have any more disappointment. Like, it's just, this is it. And I, I know this, so I can stay here. It sucks, but like, I'm here and I know it. And as I was listening to you read, I, I, what came to mind is that it requires of the people to be vulnerable in addition to trusting because to let someone in, to let this God in and trust that there's like something on the other end. So yeah, I think it's very relatable, like despair for sure. Mark? One of the things that, that I've been thinking is, as, uh, all of this discussion has gone on is that this whole story, um, I think, uh, is, is clearly understandable to me, at least, as a symbolic representation of the development of a, uh, of a belief that uh, rescues people in, uh, who are uh, in darkness and ignorance and as the as uh, people believe, then they can become uh, 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 open to the God that they believe in. Um, and, uh, and and of course, uh, as far as uh, the, the notion of despair being uh, a place of some comfort, it certainly is. As, as is slavery, a place of some comfort. Uh, um, there, it's. Uh, uh, there are a few things that are more terrifying or more difficult to deal with than real freedom. Yeah, says the psychoanalyst. Um, <laughs> there's nothing more difficult, right, than dealing with freedom, right? Because freedom means we have responsibility for our actions. Um, and also, I have a friend of blessed memory um, who shot herself and shot herself after she'd been seeing a therapist and they were finally starting to make some progress. Um, and it, when those of us traumatized in the wake of that um, were trying to process it, 
um, we learned that this is very common, that it's right just as someone is starting to come out of despair um, that you have the energy to kill yourself and the agency and the you're finally ready to act different than what is and and if you can't get across that initial instinct right that it is I ha- now am choosing and have the agency and I'm going to act in the world to change stuff and that means I choose to stop hurting by dying we we talk of freedom as just good right right we are a country that's all about freedom right that is our whole ethos freedom is really terrifying if we take it seriously if we really think we're free that is a terrifying responsibility a- and the implications are serious for us as human beings and so i think what what this has helped for me this year in looking at the story through through this lens um is that I'm a little less aggravated with the Israelites because, you know, I get very fed up with them. Um, I work with Jews, so I'm just saying, like, you know, um, all the time. Um, and so I, I get a little frustrated with them. And, like, it it helps me hold them with a lot more Rahmanis, right? Because actually, freedom is terrifying. And all that it means, all that it implies but the ways it's like, wait, if I actually hope, all the ways I leave myself open to crushing disappointment, um, I, I don't know that we take that seriously enough, even in our own times. You know, when we talk about democracy, all we do is celebrate democracy. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Everyone should have it. Um, it's also really hard, really hard work. And those of us who are so aggravated and frustrated right now, and I'm speaking for myself, um, it's like, yeah, aim, and like, yes, it's, it's messy. And it's gonna be messy. And, you know, given the issues that we're dealing with, it's even messier. And given the kind of times we're in with the unintended consequences, as Micha Goodman says, of the technological revolution, which is polarization, we're dealing with massive issues. Climate change, the unintended consequence of the industrial revolution is terrifying if we take it seriously. Right? If we really believe we can do something about it, oh my God, what does that mean about what I do with every piece of garbage in my house? What does it mean about every decision I make at the grocery store about what I purchase? Like, if we take seriously that we can do something about climate change, it wrecks your freedom every day to have kind of an easy life, right? And so, and I think in the unintended consequence of, of the technological revolution is polarization. And polarization is making it very difficult um, for us to figure out how to be in a democracy, right? And, and, and how to have those conversations because we are free to choose the direction of our country. And because of that, we are, well, not because of that, it's always been, but, you know, but we are clashing around what that means. Um, and I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I'm saying to myself, <laughs> You have to be patient. That's what she's saying. The answer to Kotzer Ruach, like, right, is, is some space and to be patient and to breathe. And I mean that on the macro level. It's gonna take time and it's gonna be fraught and it's gonna be messy and it's gonna suck until it doesn't. And, um, and I really feel like I needed this Torah, um, right now, um, in my life, um, um, Somebody had a hand up. George. 
Oh, I can't follow. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing you want to add? No, what, what's also frustrating is when we take those little steps uh, to not use water, for example. I told someone that uh, in the drought, in which I still do, I used to shut the water off uh, while I was brushing my teeth and shut the water off and then turn it back on. The response was, you're going to wear out the... The, the, the washer. <laughs> so, uh, I guess everything is extremely complex. The patients, it's frustrating because we do that and we're still in a drought. I've done that and you know what? I'm still in a drought. Right. So, it didn't work. That's right. Uh, um, but the other thing, if we go back, the other point I wanted to make earlier was that everybody has problems and somebody, some guy comes around and says, I can solve your problems. And this God, which you don't know about, told me I could do it. <laughs> to believe me, you got to be crazy. Uh, there you go. All right. Our, our uh, tradition in a nutshell. Thanks for that, George. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I want to leave with Rachel Berenblatt, the, uh, the Velveteen rabbi. Uh, you know, I love her stuff. Um, and she says, uh, essentially, Kotzer Ruach, um, right? Uh, Mitzrayim is about Tsar, the narrow places. You know, the rabbis say, don't see we went out from Mitzrayim, but Meitzarim, from the narrows. Um, that that's really what redemption is about, leaving the narrows. It isn't about geography. It's about an existential state of being so constricted that we couldn't even hear the hope that things could be better than this. And our Torah story comes this week to remind us that Kotzer Ruach is not the end of the story. Being in dire straits, unable to breathe, unable to focus, hearts and souls unable to hope is not the end of the story. On the contrary, it is the first step toward liberation. And I feel like that is where like, I want to leave us um, this Shabbat. So may we go... Uh, into the Shabbat's trusting uh, on some level that this is the truth, that Kotzer Ruach, where we are a lot these days, many of us, is not the end of our story. It is the beginning of liberation. And that takes time. It is a process. And it's going to take patience and uh, a willingness, right, to risk uh, and to hope uh, and to be disappointed and all of those things um, for us to cross that sea um, to get to the other side where we wander for 40 years. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.